0: Welcome to the Staking Defense podcast, a show where we talk to validators and key stakeholders in the crypto infrastructure world. My name is Kevin, and I'll be your host. Staking Defense aims to offer candid discussions about the state of decentralization and use the validator perspective to shed light on what is happening under the hood of some of your favorite protocols. We've got a mission, the same unifying vision that brought a lot of us into crypto, So while decentralization feels like a meme at this point, it's something we want to promote and protect with these conversations. Today, we're talking about the death of the incentivized testnet. Incentivized testnets were once a major part of the crypto ecosystem and a great way for new entrants to find a seat at the table. However, as VC money invaded the space, along with user demand for free tokens, they become meaningfully less frequent and less accessible to average users. I can't help feeling something's been lost here. In this episode, I speak with Chris Remus of Chainflow and Wade Abel of The Passive Trust about this evolution and search for signs of life in the ecosystem. Chris, Wade, welcome to the Staking Defense Podcast. Chris, I'm sure this this might sound like a a funny intro for you to hear, being welcome to your own show. I wanted to thank you for letting me take the reins as as host here and start with that. So yeah, thanks.
1: Well, I appreciate you doing that, staking defense, and we could get into it. But it was started, or it started in some form, even going back a few years ago. But it's been given new life by your involvement. So I appreciate everything you're doing so far, and I look forward to seeing what you'll do with the podcast.
0: Awesome. Yeah. So today we're talking about the death of the incentivized test net. It's something the three of us have certainly discussed in the past. And as a new validator business, it's definitely been interesting to both see and learn from you all how incentivized test nets have have changed over the past few years. I'd be lying if I said I didn't have some FOMO, uh, hearing about the salad days of uh, early Solana and and some of the other networks. But uh, before we dig in, I'd like to start by learning how you got into validating and what protocols you're working on currently. So maybe we can start with Wade.
2: Yeah, hey, Kevin. Um, thanks for having us on. Um, it's, it's great to see you uh, taking the reins and getting this podcast um, up, and, up and going, getting some, some new guests on. Um, I So I, I come from a, a bit of a different background. I come from like ski resort operations uh, and the trades background. Um, found crypto in around two, 2017, and the, the thing that went through my mind was like, I heard about this in 2013. If I had just got involved back then and learned, I'd be in a good position now um, to capitalize and be able to like um get involved in the industry. It seemed like it was something um that was going to be around for a while and it it was definitely something that piqued my interest. I set a goal then to um to actively learn um about computer science blockchain, um, and then how it was going to interact with our everyday lives in the future. So for the next couple of years, uh, I sort of went down that path of learning. Things Things changed quite a bit, like uh, 2018, 2019. I was kind of thinking, like, maybe maybe it was the wrong idea. Maybe I was maybe I was wrong. This isn't going to be be, the, be everything that I had first imagined. Uh, I was following a, a protocol at the time Aeon which was originally developed uh, to be an interoperability protocol and they went through a, a they essentially were a fork of eth but then they went um and trying and, and tried to change the consensus mechanism to a um a hybrid proof of stake proof of work model and that's sort of like where i got my first exposure to to validating Chris was on the, on, on that as well, validating, but I started validating with them. And then, um, through that, I started to hear more and more about, uh, incentivized test nets. I, I wasn't involved in the initial Cosmos incentivized test net, but my first time being involved in a, um, incentivized test net was, uh, Celo, which I, they, they did like an AMA on one of the Telegram chats. Uh, it, I think was run by Steakfish. Um, inviting validators to, to run the incentivized uh test net. And so that kind of started my journey with validating um and incentivized test nets. We can go into like what happened afterwards later, but that's the sort of intro.
0: Yeah. Uh I'll I'll get Chris's answer, but it's it's nice to yeah, yeah I have always felt kind of kindred with you in, in the way that we've found our our ways into blockchain, not necessarily being from a computer science background in the first place. And Kind of just going off of the the inspiration and the you know the ideology, the things that the the opportunity that we saw uh, in the technology, but it,
2: yeah, yeah, it's very blockchain like, <laughs> <laughs> right? Starting <laughs> grassroots, uh, coming from a completely different background, and uh, being able to have a start. Yeah, Chris, if
0: you want to go ahead, uh, I think you're on mute. If you are trying to talk, yeah,
1: <laughs> sure. I was waiting my turn. <laughs> I guess the version of how i got into it i'll tell is that i started getting interested in the crypto space in early 2016 not long after ethereum launched and i had an infrastructure background a telecom and it infrastructure background and while i started to do some project management work in the ethereum community i was looking for ways to build infrastructure to support these networks and i tried some mining using some AWS credits, and I burned through those really fast to prove to myself that cloud mining was not possible. So I realized pretty early that the ship had sailed to do any type of Bitcoin mining for me because I was coming into this with zero capital and really no desire to raise capital. So I was trying to find a way that I could run infrastructure for projects and hopefully bootstrap the efforts along the way. That's when I discovered staking. I think I discovered staking initially through some early Casper conversations on the Ethereum research forum. And then Rocket Pool caught my eye too, going way back then. And I was doing some research and you know, figuring out what other networks were starting to launch or starting to think about implementing a proof-of-stake proof of mechanism. And Cosmos and Polkadot caught my eye. Cosmos launched something at the time they called the Validator Working Group, and that was back in I think, 2017 now. October of twenty seventeen. So I joined that group and I was one of the first few people outside the I guess the Tendermint core team, if it was called that back then, to start running validators on test nets. And really from there, you know, it happened to be at the right place at the right time because the first Cosmos test net the incentivized test net launched. And after that launch, the Cosmos mainnet went live and that seems to open the floodgates to a lot of proof of stake networks coming online. So I guess I benefited from that early experience on Cosmos, and at the time, other networks were, I think, looking to the active set of Cosmos hub validators when they were recruiting other, when they were recruiting validators for other networks. So again, happened to be in the right place at the right time. And to segue a little bit, back in 2019, after the Cosmos mainnet launched, I started something I called Staking Defense. Um And ultimately, what I'm hoping to do and what we can do with Staking Defense is help keep staking and participation in proof-of-stake networks as accessible today as they were back when I started. Because I think, Kevin, to your recent experience, and from talking to other smaller independent validators that are looking to get in this and contribute to the networks they want to support, it's getting harder and harder to, to break into these active sets. So I really hope that what we can do is keep staking accessible to as accessible today or almost as accessible today as it was many years ago. And I think that really plays nicely into the conversation about the incentivized test nets and what's going on with them today.
0: Totally. And yeah, thank you for, for teeing me up. Um, because we're here to talk about um, the death of the incentivized test net. A um, little bit of a dramatic title, there are certainly incentivized test nets going on, but I think more in spirit, um, the idea of what an incentivized test net uh, can be or should be to promote uh, the greatest degree of decentralization. So maybe to start, uh, let's answer the question, what is an incentivized test net? I know it probably seems a little intuitive, but I'm interested in what it. Uh, what it means to, to you guys, because there are obviously distinctions between what it means for users versus people who want to participate as validators. I think a lot of people are familiar with the idea of incentivized test nets from the salad days of DeFi summer, where, you know, you make a few transactions on DeFi protocol and, uh, you know, three months later, you get a $15,000 airdrop (laughs) for doing very little work. But obviously we're talking about it more in the context of. You know, origin, new L1 blockchains, stuff like that. But yeah, I'd I'd love to hear your guys' answer on what an incentivized testnet is, and and maybe what it should be as far as you are concerned.
2: I can uh, I can go first with how I f- think about an incentivized testnet. Um, I think originally an incentivized testnet was started to to help create the network, um, to test the. The economic decisions that were made building the protocol, um, and allowing that to be done by by anyone um, for anyone to enter and and help with the testing, and because ultimately the the, the people, users, the validators that are that involved testing, um, they're using time, um, resources, etc. So it was a way to to have both the 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 user the the validators that were participating in the incentivized test then the protocol to, to to be owners in a sense um and to to go in and you can get operational experience if you were a validator um because you're going to be involved in how the system operates what goes wrong um what what goes well and then ultimately provide the best service when when the protocol does go live so I, I see it kind of as as a as a testing ground that allows interested participants to participate, um, no matter what their resources are at the time, but to have a have an entry into the system. I think that it has changed somewhat, and the descriptions, like my description, will be different of what what is actually happening now. But um, that's that's my feel on what an incentivized test net is.
1: And I can pick up there. I think my definition mirrors Wade's as well. I think to me, the incentivized testnet from a validator perspective is an opportunity for, for someone who has the skills and has the interest and has the commitment to hopefully prove themselves and start to establish a reputation in the community of the network that's hosting the incentivized test net in such a way that when the network goes live, when they launch their mainnet, these validators who participated in the enterprise or in the incentivized test net can then participate as a validator in the active mainnet set of validators for the network. So hearing myself say that to me, it is in a lot of ways from a validator perspective and on ramp to people to to hopefully be rewarded for the effort they put in to support and secure a network. And they can do this in a way that is not dependent on capital and capital accumulation, at least at the beginning, meaning the incentivized test net, if done right, can provide a level playing field from which entrants can enter and participate in securing the network because they should not have to be approaching these test nets with a boatload of capital. You know, if today you are looking to enter a mainnet on most, you know, the better known staking networks, the barrier to entry from a capital perspective is quite high. But to me, the goal of the incentivized testnet is to essentially lower that barrier to entry from the outset. And what I've told projects that I've worked with in helping them design their incentivized testnets, to me, the ultimate goal of an incentivized testnet should be that. If someone is to participate and they were to participate well, they should earn enough of the token in order to gain a slot in the active validator set once the mainnet goes live. So I guess to summarize, to me, I think the incentivized testnet, in addition to all the reasons and benefits that Wade mentioned from the network perspective in terms of being able to test things and figure out what breaks and, you know, mitigate risk by not testing in production. I think of it in many ways as an on-ramp for validators to be able to participate and be rewarded for their effort based on performance rather than access to capital.
0: Yeah, and I'm struck by something you, you said there, uh, which actually kind of is in a lot of ways how I think about decentralization in general, which is to me one of the key litmus tests for how decentralized a system is the ease at which a well-meaning, uh, high-value participant can, you know, provide value to a network and then sort of level up their, uh, stake in the network as a result of, of those good faith, uh, high value efforts, right? Um, and I think that, you know, in, in a healthy, well functioning system, uh, that is, is lubricated. But, uh, I think what we're talking about here today is what happens over time. Things tend to calcify. Uh, there is a centralizing, uh, you know, tendency in just about every system human beings have ever built. And so I'm interested, maybe we can come back to like the operational sort of day-to-day of incentivized test nets and some of the struggles they're in. But I think largely from my perspective, feel free to correct me, the actual operation of incentivized test nets remains relatively unchanged. What I feel like the key change is the level of gatekeeping to get into the incentivized test net in the first place. And, you know, that's where we get into this idea of the death of the incentivized test net, the death of the open incentivized test net. And what I want to ask you guys now is why you think that's fallen out of fashion. Is it simply economics? There are more people like us trying to participate. And so protocols can. Take advantage of the, that supply and demand effect, and and be, you know, a little more gatekeepy, possibly even rent seeking, in the way that they uh, set up their incentivized test nets. Wonder your guys' thoughts on that.
1: I'll I'll start with this one. I think I, to take a step back, and maybe we'll talk about this too. I think first of all, the number of incentivized test nets, or I would say the percentage of incentivized test nets. You know, as compared to the number of networks launching seems to have dropped quite a bit. From, from my experience, the reason for that is that a lot of these networks now are raising VC funding and essentially doing insider funding rounds. And usually what happens as part of those insider funding rounds, those investors, whether they be validators or VCs or infrastructures or service providers, exchanges, what have you, tend to then buy themselves You know, very big uh, seats within the validator um, active set. And if they don't run validators, typically what they do is they work with one of the big infrastructure providers or exchanges to run their nodes. So I think one of the, one of the other reasons that the incentivized test nets were being run early on is to attract and recruit a set of validators. And my sense is today that some of these networks through these fundraising efforts, don't feel the sense of urgency anymore because one, validators are easier to find and validators are easier to find, not necessarily qualified validators, but validators are. And then two, they're already preceding their mainnet validator set with a small number of participants that have very large, very large stakes. So as a result, I think what we've seen is a decrease in the number of incentivized test nets and an increase in the number of insider funding rounds. That, uh, of course comes at the expense typically of the smaller independent validators who you know hope to break into the set and support some of
2: these networks yeah i think chris captured it really well there to begin with um when when i had started there just there just wasn't um the interest in people put, wanting to participate into it in in, send, in send by Testnet or validate um this was like, there was a couple of reasons for this. Um, we just got out of like a, a long bear market. There wasn't, there wasn't that many believers that thought like that, um, crypto was actually going to be a thing. Um, and then from that, like, could you even, could you operate a business or make a living be, being a validator? Um, so I think that played, played into it quite a bit. There just, there, there wasn't many people. So like Chris was saying, um, These were initiatives to to recruit people, to to get validators and to get them to to know the systems that that they were working on. And probably in the early days, you you wouldn't even make uh say let's say there's a hundred validators, you wouldn't even get enough people to to do those hundred validator spots. Um now there's been like an with like the interest in the last couple of years of Bull Run. There's an influx of people that are, um, that are skilled and, and want to operate validators. So if, uh, incentivized testnet comes out, you have, I'm not sure how many of these are bots, but you have like 30,000 applicants, which is, is a crazy number. So you, you're, you're kind of, if, if you want to participate, you're going, you're going into, into a lottery, um, to participate. And the, the other thing that Chris also touched on is that, now we have large-scale businesses that, um, that are running running this infrastructure. And um, most VC-backed um, the protocols, they want to align with the, the larger names because they, they do have that brand um, to attract users, other investors, and ultimately money into the space. And um, it's, it's, it's very hard for an a, a independent operator now, even if they do get into the, the testnet, they don't have a relationship with um, people within the protocol, they're pro- probably predetermined who the validator set is going to be minus a couple of validators. Um, and the rewards that the, the validators, that uh, the independent validators that would get, were uh, very small in comparison to what they were and definitely not enough to actively participate in the mainnet set um, even if they got the opportunity. hmm yeah,
0: I mean, we've definitely experienced this uh, personally at, at Throwback. The networks we're validating on are because of relationships we had, not so much uh, decentralized participation. Um, and I think some of that is like I, you know, like you guys touched on, and like I said, there's this supply and demand element to it, where at a certain point the supply is much higher than the demand, and therefore, you know, uh, you're not. You know, whether, whether or not we, you know, we can argue about how valuable the service actually is, but the, it, it, the market is, is saying to you that the service is not valuable enough on its own. And that's why you see a lot of validator businesses getting into, you know, whatever their, their, their sort of, uh, differentiator is to try and crack through, at least the, the ones that aren't well healed and and cut into these, these backroom deals. One thing that I want to kind of follow up with too is, you know, you have these, these twin forces, you have less incentivized test nets now, and then you have the fact that, uh, that what incentivized test net spots there are, are, are a lot wrap, you know, more wrapped up than, than they used to be. Do you think that there's uh, an element of this that is, you know, sort of a disinterest from the part of protocols because we have more experience, even though, you know, <laughs> it really is only a few years, we have more experience behind us and in, in terms of what's expected as far as the number of validator set, like Cosmos famous kind of for the 100 validators as the, the target number. And, you know, you rarely, other than the, you know, the Ethereum model where you have, uh, thousands of nodes, you know, and there's no stake weighting to it. People are sort of happy with this number in their head of 100 to 150 and the Nakamoto coefficient being much smaller than that. Do you think that, you know, protocols are just sort of complacent? In the fact that like this is how it's done. And so if I have more than a hundred people who are relatively qualified, you know, coming to the table trying to validate, um, I don't need to worry about an incentivized test net or take on the operational overhead of really trying to create an infrastructure for, for new folks to come in, participate and, and make that number as large as possible.
1: That's a really good question. I think, um, I think partially. Well, I think my gut feel, my gut response to your question was yes. I think that's happening. I think it's happening because, what's the best way it says? I think what's happening is because in a lot of ways, the Silicon Valley VC funding model has really infiltrated and is close to taking over the space in a lot of ways. And that, that could be a whole nother episode, I guess. But in terms of the incentivized test net, incentivized test nets are hard. They're hard to design right. They're hard to run. They're really hard to run. I mean, the projects that I've, I've worked with on them and even those I've participated in really, I, so many of them are surprised, I think, at how much work it takes. Fewer now than maybe a year ago. But, you know, if these projects don't have a dedicated person manning the chats 24 seven, they get overwhelmed really, really fast. So, so running incentivized test nets is difficult, I would say. And. Not running them is a lot easier. So I think that's part of it. You know, if you have, if you have the money in your pocket and you have some people who have already signed up and, you know, you've adopted this, we have to move fast model, you know, which again is the Silicon Valley first mover advantage zero sum game mentality. Then, you know, the easy thing to do is go with what you know and, you know, race ahead. But what gets lost in the shuffle there is the concept of decentralization. Particularly as it applies to rounding out the validator set with a number of well-qualified smaller independent operators. I spoke to, you know, I spoke to a project that is democratizing MEV access for Ethereum and their ETH2 working group. This is a bit of a tangent, but I'll bring it back around. Their ETH2 working group was populated by all the big names you would expect. And I wrote a post offering to sponsor one or two independent ETH2 validators to participate in that working group. And when I spoke to the project, you know, they basically told me they, they weren't really interested in having that because they felt like one, they had it covered through this website that helps provide information to ETH2 individual validators. And also because they were afraid that they'd have too many voices to have to manage. And that experience, it, it, it turned me off because it, it really emphasized for me how far down the path so many of these projects are, even if they claim to be values aligned, that convenience and speed and I don't know what else you'd call it, but really have taken a front seat to the concept of decentralization in itself. Uh, so I really think that's a, a core, I think that's a core value and a core influence that's sweeping its way through this. And its manifestation in the incentivized testnet is one of many, but I think it's an important one in what we're talking about here.
2: Yeah, I think I would just add that um, because it is hard, they, they don't really want want to do it the way it was done before because they don't have a need to do it the way it was done before. Um, they have all all of the the boxes ticked somewhat, like they have capital, they have enough validators um the one thing that's missing is they they have a very short time time frame time limit so um they have all of those things they just kind of need people to test their assumptions um and so they can do that with picking 100 200 out of the 30,000 applicants um in distributed positions across the globe and they can do the testing as if it was decentralized because it kind of is um, and then after they've made, tested those assumptions they can then go ahead and choose the the pre- validators or um, some of the fund, funders that had provided capital um, that have big names and they can put on their on the website showing okay like we have these big names um, and then a small a, a couple of smaller validators to to make that that um, Appear more decentralized. Um, they, I guess they they are like making efforts to do the right thing. It's just um, the the incentives are kind of a bit off because they have everything they need these days.
0: Hmm. I think that's a really good point about their incentives being off, uh, just so skewed that it makes it you know the the overhead involved. Just not worth it. This might be an obvious question, but you guys really set it up for me. So I do want to ask it, um, especially for, you know, the the variety of folks that might be listening, why is an incentive to incentivized test net so hard to run? I think, you know, is it really just you've got a lot of voices to manage and it's mostly a community management thing? Or in your experience in these various incentivized test nets, have you noticed other things operationally? for, I guess, protocols is really who we're talking about now. Why is it so hard for them to run specifically?
1: Well, it it used to be, a few years ago, it used to be because people really weren't thinking it through from the beginning, meaning people weren't necessarily taking the time to say, okay, this is what we want to test, and this is what we hope the outcome is based on how we reward people, and then linking those two things together. So essentially, at the beginning saying, okay, from from our perspective, you know, from a technical perspective, this is what we want to test out, as Wade said, in terms of you know, testing out assumptions and testing out code. And as a result of that, in addition to testing out the code, we also need a validator set. And we want the validator set to look like this. So people weren't necessarily doing that planning. And then the key to that planning is linking them together. So then how do you take you know what you're hoping to test? link it to your outcomes so that you're able to accomplish both. So first, I think it was mainly lack of planning. Um, I would say that projects seem to have made some good progress along those lines since that time. And I'll start using Quicksilver uh, as an example because that's a recent one that I thought was run really well and also demonstrated how difficult things are these days because I think the Quicksilver testnet had at least a 1,000 active validators at one point. I, I mean, they really pushed the limits of um, tendermint. But, you know, it was well thought through. It was well communicated. And the team was completely inundated with requests that I've never seen before in these test nets. And the requests were ranging from... I, I, the, the level of, I guess, for me, the number of screenshots I saw posted from phones... Just, I'd never seen that before. So it got me thinking that in this case, you know, in, in their, in their, in their case, and I think this is what Wade alluded to with the 30,000 applications and the bots, that there's so many people out there that are trying to jump in and make a, a quick killing or just a quick buck that, you know, the team gets inundated with just absolutely ridiculous requests. Um, So I think to me, the challenge has shifted from one that has been addressed by planning to one that is simply trying to manage a huge number of people, um, with very, with, uh, varying skill levels, very, and varying levels of interest and also varying levels of intent in terms of good intent versus malicious intent or self-serving intent. So I think it's become one more of like a social management problem at this point than it has been of a, a technical challenge.
2: Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think these days it is a it is a well-oiled machine. Um, there's lots of examples to draw from, and yeah, it's it's just a now it's just a um, a filtering and a coordination issue trying to filter through uh, real valuable people. And yeah, I, I think I think that's kind of it, to be honest. Hmm. Yeah, to communicate and I guess coordinating. With all these people, is it, hard. But at an incentivized testnet in stage, it it isn't as hard these days because uh, people are active and they they want to earn that respect, that reward.
0: Yeah, in, in a way, it's it's funny. Uh, I was smiling a little bit as as you were talking about how in the early days it was uh, very much a planning kind of problem, a structure problem, and now it's just. You you know you have a glut of voices and and not necessarily the desire to sift through them, but in a way that kind of sounds like you're you're staring at the pro and con of VC. Like the more VC Silicon Valley model steps in and you iron out some of the chaos that comes from the decentralization and the the lack of planning of these early stage projects. But at the same time, okay, the planning is better, but now you've sort of sacrificed them some of the the key principles. Um, another point maybe for under the banner of why incentivized test nets may have fallen out of fashion is uh, I wonder about the legality. Speaking still to the VC point with more VC money, more formal institutionalized money coming in around these projects. I'm wondering, you know, do these projects, they're now kind of, Considering more uh, with and working more with robust regulatory frameworks, and that's kind of, you know, that's the reason why you can't have, <laughs> you know, uh, validators in based in the states on some and 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 uh, kind of things like that.
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't really think that's much of an issue. Really? I think um, if anything, I think it's a, a good thing. Um, what. Maybe not a good thing from a U.S. person perspective, but it's a good, it's a good thing, um, because, uh, I think the industry is skewed towards North American centric, uh, like participants. So I think opening it up or, or like those rules being in place that kind of prevent that is, is somewhat of a, of a benefit because you can then have giving, giving more of a footing to people in, um, places that wouldn't have maybe got the chance before. That's a good point. So, I, I yeah, I, I kind of don't see it as a hindrance, but I mean there is probably other takes that would say, would say that is, is a bad thing. Cool. Yeah, I, I actually like that take.
0: Um, where I wanted to go from here, and we touched on it a little bit when we were defining what an incentivized testnet is, I'm sure you both have spent a decent amount of time thinking about this. I'm wondering what your ideal incentivized testnet looks like. Chris, I know you've spent some time advising projects who are designing their incentivized testnet, so I'd be interested to get your take on this.
1: Yeah, to me, starting at the outcome, and this is from my perspective, coming back to that framework of thinking how we can continue, continue to keep staking accessible to you know people who want to come in, may have the skills, they may have the interest, they have the commitment, but they don't have the capital. So to me, a successful incentivized test net allows anyone with the skills, the interest and the commitment to participate in it in a way that meaningfully rewards them. And when I say meaningfully rewards them, I mean rewards them in such a way that they are able to accumulate enough stake to participate in the active set upon mainnet launch. And not just participate at mainnet launch, but also you know continue to be in the mainnet. Twelve, you know, six to twelve months down the road, after all the whales have emerged and have staked their stake to their top, you know, favorite large validators in, in infrastructure companies. So, to me, hopefully, they're able to accumulate enough tokens to participate and launch at mainnet, and then through the reputation that they've uh, established throughout their efforts, are able to attract enough delegation to stay in the active set for a meaningful amount of time and hopefully the long haul.
2: Yeah, I agree. I think start with the outcome. I think if you were to do an incentivized test net that um, allows for the, the correct outcome, decentralization um, and allowing participants with no capital to get involved, um, what, one of the aspects would be instead of applications, would be gamification. So um, using Everybody starting from zero and the economic assumptions, uh, allowing, um, uh, like applicants to, or not applicants, but allowing users to, to get involved, um, and participate in it from a game theory perspective where they, they start from zero and they're just using the economic, uh, assumptions of the protocol and then trying to, to, to get higher up the ranks. Though I think, uh the the Cosmos one was like this. Uh, I didn't actually participate in it, but from what I've heard, like uh, the game of zones was kind of like that. The Solo one was was like that. And I think one aspect that like helped me a lot um, because I didn't have somewhat of a background I had, I had the interest and the motivate and the motivation, but I didn't necessarily have the technical skills at the time. I think um, having a, a mentor-mentee sort of piece to an incentivized testnet is is a good aspect, and had had helped me tremendously in some of um, the previous testnets. Um, whether that's done formally um, or even just having people within a Discord openly answer questions, helping out, um, and and it grows more organically between just uh, relationships between people within, within a server. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that's two things that I think would be valuable aspects to an incentivized testnet is their uh, gamification and, um, a mentor, menteeship sort of framework. Yeah. Uh,
0: so I have a couple more and Wade, you actually brought up, uh, a couple, uh, Cosmos and Celo. So. I wanted to, uh, get a sense of, uh, your both of your best uh, incentivized testnet experiences, and kind of give credit where credit is due. Maybe talk about how those uh, models might maybe hopefully reemerge.
2: Yeah, um, so I, I, I kind of touched on it there. From from my perspective, um, Celo was one of those. Um, what, what happened after testnet? Um, is, 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 is different, but, um, the majority of people who work their way up were, were part of the Genesis set. Um, and that was without, yeah, without being funded or anything like that. I haven't, like, I have been on and off participating in other incentivized test nets since then. Um, and I, so to, to, to be really honest, I'm, I'm yet to see like something that works the way the old ones used to work. I've been involved in a couple. I'm not going to mention names because it, it, there's no need, but like I've been involved in a couple where uh, I've actively contributed and um, I've been one of the top validators. And then it gets to say mainnet and um, foundation voting or we'll just vote on what, whatever ones were predetermined or unless you've uh, built up a relationship with somebody, um, some of the whales. So um, when you get to the mainnet stage, um, you really don't have any stake and you, you can't, you, you can't really compete. Um, you, you're just kind of absorbing, uh, infrastructure costs in the hope that one day you'll be around long enough that you get enough stake or, or you actively go and try to make friends with whales or, or, or foundations or, or everything else. So I'm interested to see where it, where it goes from here. I think that. There, there is a possibility of having um, an incentive assess like the old ones. I don't think that it comes from VC-back chains, just because of the, the way the economics are aligned these days. I think that it would come from a more grassroots approach. And then even in, if it does, I don't know if the grassroots approach of the, a network will operate um, at the scale of some of these well-funded ones. So I
1: hope that kind of answers the question. I went on a little bit of a tangent there at the end. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, I would agree that Cello ran a ran a good test net. I I would say, I guess, to take a step back, when I think of a good test net from a participant perspective, a good test net, the tasks are clearly laid out in a document that's not a chat a chat channel and communication is clear and consistent, and it comes through hopefully a single announcements chat channel. So I think if an incentivized testnet has clear documentation as to what tasks need to be run when, and those updates are clearly communicated via a single channel and consistently communicated there, that's the foundation for an effective testnet. And then to Wade's point, hopefully, again, and coming back to something I said, hopefully rewarding people with enough token to actually participate you know as an active validator at mainnet launch and stay in that set. And what, what what's happening these days that like Wade alluded to is that it's not you're not going to earn enough rewards on most networks in order to to participate in the Active Set at Mainnet or to stay in that active set at mainnet past three months. So a lot what a lot of validators need to do is then rely on foundation delegations. Which I think can be quite finicky at best. And I think to Wade's point too, I think the worst test net outcome is when there's someone who participates and participates well and does well and, you know, essentially follows all the rules and does everything they're supposed to do only to get, you know, find themselves out of the active set three months after launch. You know, I think in that case, the incentivized test net was more or less useless and these networks should have, you know, just Straight out, you know, selected their set of validators been upfront about it rather than waste everybody's time, you know, because it takes so much time and effort, especially for smaller independent validators to to do what's being required, because what's being required is also gotten more significant, you know, over the years, too, because now it's not simply a technical thing. It's now becoming a marketing thing, too. You know, networks are asking you to write blog posts, provide documentation, you know, produce podcasts or what have you. So the requirements are also the, the rewards are dropping and the requirements are increasing. Um, but that said, I think um, in the early days, IrisNet, you know, one one of the Cosmos networks, I always thought did a really good job at running test nets. Acelo did a nice job in terms of getting people, at least at the beginning, into an active role at the mainnet launch. And then most recently, and I referred to it earlier, I thought Quicksilver did a really good test net recently. And I think one of the reasons that happened is because one of the Quicksilver founders, Joe Bowman, you know, had participated in a lot of incentivized test nets, you know, as a validator operator and was able to apply all those lessons that he learned along the way to the Quicksilver test net. So I think Quicksilver recently really ran a good one too.
0: Yeah. Thanks for sharing. What I wanted to close with is a, dus- a discussion around the likelihood of the incentivized test net returning. I'm wondering if you all think there is a lane for incentivized testnet programs to spur further decentralization in more established protocols, or does it really need to be done at the outset from the base layer, which I guess could be reinterpreted as a question. Um, is it possible for established networks, networks that are already running, to wake up and realize they need to further decentralize stake And using incentivized testnet programs as a lever, one lever, to do so? Or do you really think that it's only going to happen from more grassroots, non-VC-funded chains? Um, Perhaps they are specialized in some way um, and they can find product market fit while starting from the start with decentralized principles. Uh, Or maybe it's not binary and, and a little bit of both can happen. But I'm interested in your perspective there.
2: I think it can come from larger, um, larger protocols, but I think, um, there needs to be a voice to, to make this a priority. So I think it has, if, if it was like that, it would have to come from the key stakeholders and then the key stakeholders have to be the users and they have to actively, um, voice that they want a decentralized network and that it matters. And I think that is what. Uh, like we were all involved in S- SDL to do, is to help get that voice out there to make sure that it's being heard, that there there is a need and a want. The programs like incentivized test nets that, that help with the decentralization of the network and help with the original ethos of like, why, why we're all sort of involved in the, in the industry.
1: I also think that's an interesting point. I've never thought of, to me, I've always associated with incentivized testnet as a pre-launch activity. And my sense is most of the core teams behind these networks do too. Um, but it's an interesting question you pose. And to Wade's point, it would take a, a, pers- a, a big perspective shift, I think, in order to do this, because these networks would have to be incentivized themselves to actually care enough to redistribute stake to go through this again. That said... By the time they've launched, they're probably better capitalized, and they could be in a better position to do this. Also, uh, so it would—I mean, Solana, for example, Solana ran a series of incentivized test nets even after launch, and that model seemed to work pretty well. So it's so it's not unheard of, but I do think the narrative's going to have to change a lot around the incentivized test net as a pre-launch activity in order for it to gain any traction to happen post-launch. Because, in my experience, what happens with decentralization is the networks who don't start to decentralize early, you know, it, it's an inverse relationship. The longer, or maybe it's a, a direct relationship, the longer it takes for a network to start to decentralize, the less likely it is for them to actually decentralize. So, you know, as they get further and further from mainnet, decentralization becomes less and less a priority. It's less likely that they're going to care enough to take on the, take on the burden in their minds to launch another incentivized test net. That said, If over time, people's incentives are changed either willingly or unwillingly by different actors who are forcing them to or scaring them enough to not be too centralized, then we could see a revival in incentivized test nets. But I think there is some benefit to be had to starting to think about that. But I I do think it's starting at the grassroots and encouraging um, effective decentralized incentivized test nets from the outset that is probably the path of least resistance and the one that will provide the most benefit fastest. Yeah appreciate that.
0: yeah I, it, it begs an interesting question I agree with both of you that there needs to be a perspective shift and personally I'm not super optimistic that even if a really good grassroots movement sort of gives a voice to that necessity, I think it'll probably take some kind of exogenous event to get perspective, uh, shift within the stakeholders that actually have the power to make those changes. It's sort of the inherent problem in proof of stake. It's like he who holds the coins holds the power. Right. And so I think that, you know, where I sit with it is I think that there is a lane for incentivized testnet programs in larger networks. I think it'll probably take something bad to happen for you know it it to be really acted upon and the hope is that the infrastructure and the need and the voices and the sort of people who could meaningfully make that change are are in position to sort of capitalize on a moment like that perhaps it, it won't be that way and i'm being a little cynical but i i do kind of think that uh, we're we're a long ways away so i guess i would land in a similar spot to you chris and and wade in that Probably uh, as a pre launch is, if, you know, from more grassroots networks is at least today where we're going
1: to see that activity. I would say to end on maybe a more positive note. Please. Please do. A- well, <laughs> well, no, I'm, I'm wondering how, maybe you've been talking to me too much, but <laughs> to, to think about it from a positive side for anybody listening to this that might be in a position of wanting to try and operate on some of these networks. By coming at it without a lot of capital. I would say over the past few months, I've seen an upswing in the number of incentivized tests and it's launching. So at, you know, at the same time we've been talking about the death of the incentivized test net, I don't think it's dead yet. So I do think that there's a window of opportunity. I don't know if it's six months, 12 months, 18 months, or if it'll be a window that closes and opens again. But I would say, you know, it seems like the window is still open at least for, some period of time. And one of the things that we might be able to do with the staking defense league is provide some mentorship for some validate, you know, for some aspiring validators like Wade mentioned earlier on. So I, I do think the window is still open. I think people have to approach the test net with the knowledge that they might have gained through listening to this podcast and that understand what the motivations are of the network that's running it and understand that their efforts really will be rewarded, at least, you know, somewhat proportional to their efforts before jumping in. Uh, So I guess what I'm saying is sounds like the windows open. It's important to be selective, even though it's hard to be selective because everybody's FOMOing around at the beginning of these things. And at the same time, maybe the SDL can help by providing some mentorship. And one of the things that we're doing already is, you know, helping each other figure out which test nets to run on. So I think that's another benefit that people who may want to join the SDL would gain by, by joining us because we're talking a lot about what test nets we're running on and why. And that in itself acts as a pretty strong filter as to which are the good ones and which are the not so good ones right now.
2: Yeah, I, I agree. Like, well, overall, it sounded like it, Like, it, we, we were... Pretty bearish. <laughs> uh, I, I'm quite the opposite. I'm very positive. Um, I I would use this yeah as a reference of history um, of... Like how we got to where we are now. And to be honest, like, I think like we all have the opportunity to, to guide these, these protocols and the incentivized testnet to, to be something that we want that, um, that contributes to, to, to what we value uh, in, in the crypto industry. So, um, I see it more as an opportunity. Um, we, we, we have a good standing of like, maybe we might have gone a little bit off track so far. But we we have the option um, to contribute and to, to be the change that we want to see.
0: Yeah, that, that's great. And I think there is a, a definite point to the sort of cyclicality of crypto that that creates these opportunities. You know uh, things sort of die off and then new things sprout up and they bring with them opportunities for for folks to uh, use you know participation as a, as a means of getting in rather than and Capital Um, so great Be the Change Uh, that'll be uh, the the subtitle of the the episode thanks for that Wade
2: (laughs) we'll take it we'll take it